All right, well, welcome everybody. Man, today we are going to be discussing possibly the biggest objection against God. Some people refer to this argument as the God killer. Skeptic Michael Shermer says that this is the most powerful argument against God's existence that he has ever encountered and in support of the atheist position. In fact, he said if he had heard this argument sooner, he would have left Christianity sooner, become an atheist sooner, <laughs> earlier in life. And so what is this argument? Well, we are going to get into it, talk about what it is, as well as how to respond, how to think critically about this to see if this argument is sound and if it is a good one. That is today's conversation. My name is Ryan Pauly. This is Think Well. The goal of this show is to train you to think well so you can engage the culture well and from a biblical perspective. My guest today, a good friend, colleague, Dr. Tim Stratton. Tim, thanks for joining me again. This is, uh, your, this is I think, your third time on the show. Is it? Yeah, I think, I think that's so. right, um, man. But it seems like more because you and I uh, have so many opportunities to talk that you and I uh, have so many deep theological conversations uh, that aren't being recorded. And if those were recorded, then that would just, you know, that could be a whole new YouTube channel on its yeah. own. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, I love uh, talking to you, man. Absolutely. Tim is a, uh, is the founder of think, uh, I was about to say think well, uh, free thinking ministries, um, and professor, um, at Trinity school of the Bible and uh, theological seminary. Uh, but also we are colleagues with Maven and Maven. We are both field guides with Maven. And so we take, mm -hmm. uh, the trips to Utah, to Berkeley, to Flagstaff, Arizona, the theological apologetic and worldview immersive experiences. And, uh, one time a year, there's a big trip at the end of the year that we all get together. And that is where these conversations happen. And so, yeah. uh, Tim, yeah. Um, I'm excited for this conversation. This has come up a few different times for me recently, and, and it comes up in conversations where where people just ask this question and present the argument. It also came up on my YouTube channel, and so maybe now I'll kind of throw that argument out, and that is the divine hiddenness argument. That's what we're talking about here today. And it comes out in some different ways. I had a conversation a little while back with Jonathan McClatchy. Uh, we were talking about intelligent design and God revealing himself in nature, and I pointed to Romans chapter one, where it says, you know, God's existence can be clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that he has been made so that they are without excuse. And a skeptic kind of wrote to me and said, look, to say this suggests that all non-theists are either not looking or are not looking sincerely. And this is massively uncharitable. We had a follow-up conversation. He kind of, in a sense, said you shouldn't be saying that God's existence is clearly perceived, that there are these things called non-resistant non-believers, which we'll get into as right. well. But also just in conversations with students and other people, this idea of like, look, if, if God wanted to prove and show me that he exists, why doesn't he just show up? Why does he remain so hidden? And so this is going to be the topic of our conversation of like, God is there. If he's all present, all knowing, all loving, if he loves us, why doesn't he just show himself to us? Give me some evidence and I would believe. Uh, Tim, I'm mm -hmm. kind of curious, how have you seen this argument? Where have you kind of heard this argument being presented as well? Well, I think first of all, uh, there's a form of it that's more of a theological puzzle as opposed to an objection. Um, you know, just why, why does it seem like God is hidden? at times, you know, why, why isn't he just more in our face? Right. Uh, so to speak, um, you know, and so, and sometimes, uh, I think most Christians would, would say, well, yeah, there, there are times where God seems overwhelming in our lives, but a lot of times it seems like he's not. So why is that the case? But yeah. that's not really what the objection is. The argument is, uh, as you, as you alluded to, there's these, uh, so-called, uh, non-resistant non-believers. And I'll talk more about uh, that category of uh, people um, as we as we go on. But yeah, I've seen, uh, and the, the reason why I eventually took this argument up and wanted to interact with it was because I, I kept seeing it get a lot of traction on social media uh, from well-read atheists. Now, at first, when I when I first heard it, I was like, that's that's the stupidest argument ever. You know, I was like, whatever, we can just dismiss that. That's not going anywhere. Well, I said the same thing about uh, email when that first came out in the 90s. Like, nobody's going to be using this stuff. You know? <laughs> uh, so the same thing about Facebook. And, you know, whenever I say something like that, you know, it's uh, not going anywhere um, or that it is going to go somewhere. Uh, but uh, anyway. I saw this getting more and more traction. So then I decided, well, I better get the book 
and look into it. So I, I picked up uh, Schellenberg's uh, book called The Hiddenness Argument. Um, and it's not that big. It's a, it's a fairly easy read. It's well written. Um, I encourage people to read it. Uh, I actually enjoyed it. I think Schellenberg's a, a really good author. And I found myself agreeing with a lot of what he was saying. Um, but I think he made some big mistakes along the way. But what really, you know, <laughs> I wrote here, um, I don't know if you, I mean, I, may, I, I always make just I can, I can see notes on the title. Yeah, right, right, right. But, you know, chapter seven, must a God be loving? And I wrote an atheist arguing that if God exists, he is a maximally great being and omni love or omni benevolent. And I thought, wow, you know, Schellenberg does a better job of arguing this attribute of God than many Christians do. In fact, some Christians like Arthur Pink uh, straight out denies that God is omni love or that he loves everybody. Um, and I think that's the worst thing to do in the world. And I think that's unbiblical, but many people uh, have to resort to things like that to make their personal favorite theological view work. Um, <laughs> but uh, to deny uh, one of God's uh, omni attributes, especially, you know, you think at first John four, eight, God is love. And to say, no, God doesn't love everybody. I'm like, okay, we're going to have problems here. But I think Schellenberg did a good job of arguing, no, if, you know, he doesn't think God exists, but he's like, but if God exists, this is how he would be. He would be a maximally mm -hmm. great being who loves everybody and he makes a good case. Anyway, um, from there, uh, Schellenberg makes a shift from the problem of evil. And I, I consider the uh, problem of divine hiddenness to be a subset under the umbrella of the problem of evil. Uh but, you know, basically the way things ought not be, right? Uh, that's what I usually think of when I think of the term evil. Um, but Schellenberg argues that, look, it wouldn't be this way. If God is really loving, there wouldn't be people who are not resisting and actually, you know, and who would want to believe in God, but that don't believe in God. And so he makes this case from there that, that uh, God would never allow this to happen. Now, when one argues in that fashion, it's kind of dangerous for the arguer uh, because all you've got to do then is provide one counterexample. And uh, uh, I wrote a paper with uh, my colleague, uh, Yaquibus Erasmus from South Africa. And we offer, um, uh, we came up with multiple counterexamples and I think we offer two in our paper. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's where we're at with it right now. Oh, yeah. And that's what, you know, I want to talk about because, you know, when when I was starting to kind of think through this, I, I love the connections that we have and being able to get to know you because I, I shot you a text. It was like, hey, Tim, have you dealt much with this divine hiddenness argument, non-resistant non-belief? And you're like, yeah, I just published a paper. I just wrote a paper on this. It's about to be published. And I gave a presentation at EPS, the Evangelical Philosophical Society's annual conference on it. Uh, and I'm like, all right, let's go. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I think that this as you said, kind of this does fall under the problem of evil. And that's often what people say is like kind of the biggest uh, objection against God, because it is so personal. I think that that's where this argument falls too, is that you can use it in this very logical way and philosophical way of saying, look, if, if God is, is loving and exists and he would show himself to us, his, his existence isn't obvious. And therefore you have all these non-resistant non-believers, people who are not resistant to him, people who would believe in him. If he gave them evidence, there's just not this evidence. And why doesn't he give them evidence? But I think it's also very personal uh, and maybe you correct me on this if I'm wrong, but it also, I think is, is can be to the skeptic, to the person saying, look, I, I think I'm honestly seeking. And, and you're in that conversation with someone and they're saying, look, I'm seeking God. I just don't see evidence. Where is he? Why doesn't he just show himself up to me that, you know, prove himself to me, then I would exist. But I think also maybe yeah. too for the Christian, right? I think this leads to a lot of doubt in a Christian's mind where you're praying and praying and asking God for, for something. And he just doesn't answer that prayer. And it's like, God, if you love me, if you're there, why don't you... Why don't you show up? Why don't you do something? Yeah. You know, I, and yeah. I think of all the times where just recently my family was sick and I'm praying for my wife, praying for my son. God, please heal right. them. And they don't get better instantly. It's like, God, you could just instantly heal my family and yeah. you don't. Why? And I think that can lead people to doubt. Like, why? Why are you hidden? Why don't you show you're there and do right. this miracle that I'm asking? Yeah. yeah. 
Now, those are uh, two different problems. Um, and like, yeah, the, the, the second one is one that Christians uh, struggle with. Uh, but the first one is uh, ones that the atheists are going to use to um, to argue for atheism. Right. Now, uh, you know, and so with, let's talk about the, the non-resistant non-believer. I mean, in our paper, we grant that these folks exist. Uh, I'm not sure that they actually do. But I'm not going to make that. I'm not going to spend time arguing against that right now. But on a more pastoral level, or you know, at the coffee shop level, um, if I'm talking to one of my friends who uh, is saying that he's a non-resistant non-believer and things like that, no, um, you're not. You know, yeah, <laughs> yeah you know, over the co- over coffee, talking in a friendly manner, I might kind of challenge him, like, well, you know, how are you living right now? Is there any part of your lifestyle? Uh, you know, your everyday lifestyle that would be opposed to the Christian lifestyle if you were, uh, if you were a Christian, that you would have to give up, that you would have to change. Normally, that's going to be the case. And so on a more of a pastoral or, or friendly, friendly level, I'll, I'll kind of kind of examine. So, you know, if he's, if he's having, uh, you know, if he's having sex with his girlfriend, you know, and, uh, the, and if he came to realize or admit or affirm that Christianity was true, then he realized that that would have to stop um, and he doesn't want that to stop. Well, then there might be reason to think you're uh, you are resistant, even if you don't think you are, that you, you might really be. And, and God, if he exists, knows if he is really even kind of subconsciously resisting or not. But we're going to grant that. Uh, today, we're going to grant that there are these non-resistant non-believers, and I am open to the idea that they do exist. So I'm not, I'm, you know, I, I say I'm not sure that they do, but I am open to it. And I'll I'll provide an example of somebody that, if there is such a category of a, a non-resistant non-believer, I think uh, we have a good candidate in mind that most people know of. So I'll get to that later. Yeah. And I, you know, reminds me too of a conversation I had with a student, right? He was standing at the door of my classroom and he just flat out said, if I admit that God exists, then I will have to stop doing the things I want to do. Right. right and I, and right, I use that right, example right. to say, look, that's not all atheists. That's not everybody, right. but there, we cannot deny the fact that there are people that are asking a lot of intellectual questions and having that conversation mm-hmm. with us. And you're answering all their arguments for God's existence and presenting evidence for the soul and the resurrection of Jesus and the reliability of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, what's going on? And then it really comes down mm-hmm. to, I'm doing these things that I don't want to have to stop doing because Christianity says those things are wrong to do. And, and so, you know, maybe there is some resistance there at a deeper level that they're not willing to admit or see. Um, but we'll talk about that as well. So let me lay out the argument here really quick and then we'll kind of work into this. And the question did uh, comment did come in in the live chat that I uh, want to throw your way and get your uh, op- uh, thought on as well. Um, but here's the argument uh, from Schellenberg. He says, um, uh, where did I write it down? Here it is. Um, nope, that's not it. Where did it go? Oh my goodness. Do you have the argument there? Cause I know I'm not. Uh, um, yeah. Yeah. Here, oh, here I found here, it. Here. Okay. Okay. All right. Here it is. God's existence entails that there would never be non-resistant non-believers. So if God existed, uh, then there would be no non-resistant non-believers because God would ensure that all non-resistant people become believers. Premise two is therefore, uh, uh, there are non-resistant non-believers. Uh, therefore, the conclusion is, therefore, God does not exist. So there is kind of the the, the premise or the, the backing of the argument. So really, anything you want to clarify there really quickly on the argument before we kind of get to some responses to it? Yeah, no, that's, uh, uh, you stated it uh, accurately. And so I would just say that I think the description of the hiddenness argument uh well, it really depends on the on the following principle, and I call this uh, principle A, and this is in in the paper that I wrote with Erasmus. But it depends on this principle that uh, principle A necessarily, if God exists, then for some time T and some finite person S, who is a non-resistant seeker at T, God will ensure that or provide sufficient evidence. For belief in God, such that at T, S believes God exists, and so uh, that's the that's the you know the principle A is what the argument the hiddenness argument hinges upon, and so that principle uh, we're going to attack. So can we? So for the, those of us who maybe are a little bit less um, 
uh, logic minded uh, when mm-hmm. we talk about person s time t. Let's throw some let's throw yeah, some yeah. words in there. <laughs> so it's saying okay, is, yeah, yeah. if we have Bob, who God knows that Bob would accept him today if um, he had evidence yeah, on Friday or on Friday. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. If he had evidence, therefore God would give Bob evidence on Friday and Bob would accept mm-hmm. him. Yeah. So, okay. So, yeah. So necessarily if God exists, then for some time T say today on Friday and some finite person S call him Bob, who is a non-resistant seeker on Friday, God will ensure that or provide sufficient evidence for belief in God such that on Friday, Bob will believe that God exists. Okay. So is this saying, uh, is Schellenberg arguing here that, that, God would guarantee it's necessary that God saves him on Friday. Like the moment that he becomes a non-resistant seeker, he is then going to become a believer or can you become a non-resistant seeker and a week later become a believer? Or is it, he's saying, no, the moment you're not resistant, that's where you, you become a Christian. Yeah. Or believer. Yeah. And I I think it's easy to show that this principle is false because uh, yeah. And, and and we'll give some, uh, counterexamples and thought experiments here, but uh, yeah, just because you're a non-resistant seeker on, you know, on Friday doesn't mean on Saturday uh, you, you can't, um, or, or that you have to, you have to become a believer on Friday and not Saturday right. or even a year from Friday, or let alone 10 years from Friday. And and we can explain, we can show how, why that's the case. Yeah. Now really quick. So let me, yeah, go. I was just going to say that ultimately, if we can show that, then this whole argument that is supposed to be the best argument for atheism ever, or like you said, the God killer, uh, it just ultimately crumbles and falls yeah. apart and fails. So, yeah. But- so now, every time I talk to a, a Christian or, or apologist or a philosopher, I always ask, you know, what's the, what do you think is the best argument for God's existence? And it's like, well, it just depends, right? It's so subjective of s- different people find different things convincing. And so calling this, right. you know, the best argument against God or the best ag- yeah. objection against God is somewhat subjective of what people find convincing. Uh, but there are people out there that are claiming this is one of the best. And I think that yeah. kind of the emotional weight as well as kind of maybe the the argument behind it uh, of and and the amount that it is used and the amount that I've heard it. It's like, hey, I think this is probably one of the biggest areas of struggle for people. Now, Phil Bear comments in uh, and he says, this is the worst argument against God. Let me put it here on the screen. Uh, and here's his reason. He says, if you have a priori evidence that is quite strong, the lack of empirical evidence is in- inconsequential. Uh, what would you say in response to this comment? Well, uh, Phil's a great, uh, great guy. Just got to say hi, Phil. And uh, he and I are actually co-authoring a book together um, that should be out uh, uh, hopefully in uh, 2023. Um, but yeah, so he's saying this is the worst argument <laughs> against God. Because if, if you have strong a priority evidence, then the lack of empirical evidence is inconsequential. Um, yeah, I think that would just depend on the, the structure of a uh, hiddenness argument. So I don't, I'm not, I, I would want to talk to Phil more about that um, to see what exactly what he's talking about. But is he talking about if, if you have, uh, well, I think it's like, for God's existence. Then the yeah, lack so I think of, it, uh, how I understand it, I would agree. Right. Where it's like, okay. if you have really strong evidence that, um, that something is exists, that something is true, then even though you have a lack of empirical evidence for it, doesn't mean that it that it doesn't exist, right? Oh, or yeah. that it's so not I think, I true. Yeah. So I think what Schellenberg's doing here though is is saying, look, here's uh here's the evidence. You say that God is a maximally great being, uh perfect and power, love, and knowledge. Um and and if so then these there's there's not going to be non-resistant non-believers, but look, there's all these non-resistant non-believers. Therefore, uh, God doesn't exist. So he's trying to show that there's there's a logical uh, impossibility, or, or there's a some contradiction here between the idea of a, a maximal, uh, a maximally great being, a perfect God, uh, the one that most Christians are going to say corresponds to scripture and reality uh, that, that God is a maximally great being and 
But but this is and it's the same move that people make with the problem of evil, and that's why I say they're related. So the the typical problem of evil goes something like this: They'll say, "Well, look, if God is omnipotent, He would have the power to stop all this pain, evil, and suffering. Um, if God is um, omnibenevolent, He would want, you know, perfectly good and all loving. He would want to stop all this pain, evil, and suffering. If God is omniscient, He would know how to use His power to stop all this pain, evil, and suffering." But look at all this pain, evil, and suffering. Therefore, uh, God is either not one of these, doesn't have one of these omni attributes, and therefore God, by definition, um, as, as a maximum great being, does not exist. Um, and if this is your God of the Bible, then the God of the Bible doesn't exist. And they go from there. So I think I think uh, Schellenberg's making a similar move, saying, look, if, if you've got an omni God who is a maximally great being, there would never be any non-resistant non-believers, but there are non-resistant non-believers. Therefore, he does not exist. And and uh, you might have some kind of a supernatural, powerful Kalam kind of creator of the universe, but that's just a big, powerful being who's not worthy of worship if he's not a maximally great being. And I would tend to agree that that uh, we've got to keep all of God's omni attributes in place. If we don't, we we. Uh, starting to have undercutting defeaters to even scripture. For example, if God is not perfectly good, then um, and, and desi- if God does not desire uh, uh, people to know truth, um, then why should we trust scripture and things like that? If he's not, and if he doesn't know how to use his power to inspire scripture and things like, that, he's got to be a maximally great being um, for us to even get traction with saying that the Bible is trustworthy. But anyway, I'm kind of. Yeah, uh, going on. on a, yeah, I just think I think it is important there. to kind of recognize. I think the, the the body of evidence that does exist, uh, where look, it's it's like if you have ten pieces of evidence for something, and nine point two, you know, Bob being guilty of murder, and there's one piece of evidence you can't figure out. That one doesn't outweigh everything you have in favor. And so, if you you yeah. know, it's like you you can't just take this one thing and say, well, God doesn't, you know, show himself. If, if we're talking about the more kind of simple version of the argument of man, where is God? Why didn't he show himself? Therefore he doesn't exist. And it's like, right. well, but what about all the reasons we have for his existence, right? This, this, just yeah. because you don't know why yeah. he's not showing up, um, why he's not answering your prayer, why he's not just revealing himself in a powerful way to you doesn't mean he's not mm-hmm. actually there. And we can't just ignore all that yeah. other evidence that we do have. Um, so, so let's kind of jump into that. Or you want to jump in here? Well, I just see, you know, I'm looking at some of the, the comments right now. Um, uh, I see uh, Slam RN uh, says, we have eyewitnesses, so it's not hidden. Uh, you just do not want to believe those witnesses. So, I mean, just to put myself in their shoes, um, you know, I don't want to attack straw men here. Um, I think they would say, look, I, uh, in fact, I know, I mean, these are some of the academics who are advancing this view that I've talked to, you know, they're, they're going to say, well, look, I have, I want, they'll say, I want to believe. I just don't. Um, I, I don't find the arguments for God's existence convincing. I don't find the argument from the historical, uh, you know, analyzing the, the historical case of the resurrection convincing. Um, I, just, I want to, I just don't. Um, and, and in fact, I know a couple of guys who have said, and I, I go to church every Sunday. Um, and I go, I do everything I'm supposed to do. I even pray. Uh, I just don't believe now. Do I, do I believe them that they're sincere in that? That's another question, right? I, I kind of have my doubts because then when I start saying what's wrong with the hiddenness argument that they are advancing, they get or they have become rather emotional about it. And so that, that seems to be a clear sign that they're not non-resistant, even though they're telling me they are. I don't know for sure God does, but I just want to say, this is how they're going to argue. They're going to say, look, um, even if it's not them, you know, and I've talked to one guy that says, yeah, I am resistant, but there are others out there who are non-resistant non-believers. And that is not logically compatible with the God that you claim exists. And so therefore it's not just uh, so yeah, I could be arguing with uh, somebody who is who claims to be a resistant non-believer, but the reason they claim that they're resistant is because these other guys are out there who are non-resistant non-believers, and so we have to address their argument. Um, 
and make sure we're not going after straw men. Yeah. All right. So let's jump into the argument then. I think we've kind of laid okay. out what the argument is here a lot. Uh, what then, uh, how, how are these compatible? Where, where are we going with the response to this idea of non-resistant non-believers and God not showing up in a sense? Okay. Um, yeah. So uh, should I, let me see here. Let me find uh, something I'm looking for in my notes here. Can you rephrase that question for me? Yeah, it's it's so kind of then beginning to respond to this, right? I think that it can be responded to in multiple different ways. Um, where we can talk about like this idea of like, you know, why do we expect more? You know, one thing I often think of is like when people are like, I want my own miracle. Uh, in, in my mind, it's uh-huh. like, is are we saying that the miracle of the resurrection is not enough? Like, like at what point, and, and this is sometimes what I push back on is like, what would be enough? Right. And, and you hear kind of people make jokingly comments like Richard Dawkins, I think once said it was like, you know, even if God, you know, the sky split open and God spoke down, hey, Richard, you know, I am God, oh, I exist. Yeah. He goes, then I would believe. And he goes, well, actually, I'll probably check myself into a sane asylum first. You know, it's like, you know, right, and, and right, the question right, is right. like, should is God responsible to, to give us this insane amount of evidence uh, to each person just to get them to believe. I know both you and I uh, took classes from Clay Jones uh, at Biola in our class on why God allows evil, where, where he talks about this idea that God has given enough evidence uh, to yeah. justify those who want to believe, to have their beliefs justified, but not so much evidence that those who do not want to believe have to feign loyalty. It's like, you know, God could mm-hmm. put a flaming sword in the sky that every time someone does something bad, it comes down and chops them in half and, and you realize right, God right, exists. Right. And it's like, who would believe in God yeah. in that world? Well, everyone would believe that God exists in that world. But how many would no be worshipers would of God? How many would love <laughs> right. God versus be afraid yeah. of God? And probably the answer is very few. And so uh, and so I think we, we can one kind of way push back and say, well, has God given us enough evidence to have our beliefs justified? He's not left us completely in the dark. Yeah. Uh, why do we think that he should give us more. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, kind of this idea of, uh, you, you talk about this principle A of Schellenberg's argument of non-resistant non-believers. So that's what I was kind of going with this this first uh-huh. question of, um, it, it should, would, should God always save that person the moment they become non-resistant? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and in the paper, uh, I quote uh, Clay Jones. Um, and, and I think that exact quote that you mentioned, but what, what we do in our paper is, uh, we should look, I, I'll just say this. I think Schellenberg's argument is really good. I told you before that I used to kind of laugh at it. Uh, that was when I didn't really understand it. And when you really dig into it, I think he makes a really good case. And I think, <laughs> I think what his argument does is it does show that most people's view of God fails. Um, but then what Erasmus and I do is say, well, look, if Molinism is true, Molinism, unlike maybe every other view, uh, stands unscathed. Uh, so I'm, I'm not going to say that every other view is defeated by Schellenberg. It might be, uh, but it's definitely damaged. But I don't think it even... Uh, uh, scratches Molinism. So in the paper, we offer a Molinist response or solution to Schellenberg's hiddenness argument. And so uh, just the structure of the argument, uh, first we start out by explaining Molinism, then we start out by explaining Schellenberg's hiddenness argument, and then we show uh, why Schellenberg's argument uh, fails if Molinism is true. So I don't know. Uh, should I, does your audience have a good understanding of Molinism? Should I explain maybe, that? Maybe briefly? a little, maybe a little bit. Yeah. Uh, just kind of give a, yeah. a basic understanding of what is Molinism. Yeah. Okay. So, so Molinism is a, a theological view derived from a, a Spanish theologian from the 16th century named Luis de Molina. So we get Molinism from Molina. Um, and uh, really it's uh, Molina tried to explain uh, God's sovereignty in terms of not just omnipotence, which I think uh, like many Calvinists might kind of do, um, but but he he wanted to have this full orb view of God's omnipotence and omniscience. You know, maximally great in both these areas. So he's necessary necessarily omnipotent and necessarily omniscient. And he would argue that if God is necessarily omnipotent and omniscient, you know, can't can't fail <coughs> to. Uh, be perfect in power and knowledge, um, 
in any circumstance, including the circumstance prior to his creative decree, then God has this middle knowledge. Um, so according to Molinism, God created a world containing uh, creatures who have libertarian freedom or libertarian free will to think and act. And thus, that means that that at least some creatures like humans, that our thoughts and actions are not always caused or determined by external factors or antecedent conditions. So, <laughs> um, uh, so there's a difference between being determined by prior conditions and these, and the, or you know, prior conditions not uh, determining or necessitating all of your thoughts. If those things are up to you and not determined by something prior to you or something other than you, then you've got libertarian freedom to think and act. So anyway, I argue that God blessing humanity with the gift of libertarian freedom uh, allows for many goods like human rationality. I just uh, wrote a paper with J.P. Merland about that. Um, it's uh, it's published in the journal Religions, and it's a special edition on how uh, philosophy helps theology. So uh, yeah, we argue that um, important kinds of rationality are not compatible with determinism. So that would be naturalistic determinism or the idea that God determines everything. Um, so yeah, God gives us human or God gives humans libertarian freedom so that we can have important kinds of rationality, uh, that we can be moral creatures uh, worthy of uh, praise um, or blame and a, a, you know that we deserve praise or blame. And ultimately, this libertarian freedom, allows humans to experience the best kind of love, not just with others, but with God himself. So uh, God wants to give us libertarian freedom. Now, since God is free, is also free in a libertarian sense, and if, and if God, if you know, some theologians out there are so against the idea of libertarian freedom that they don't even want God to have it. Well, if that's the case, then God's not omnipotent, right? God cannot do all things. Um, if God doesn't have libertarian freedom. He can only do one thing, and that's the actual thing that he did and create this exact world and nothing else. So God would be unipotent as opposed to omni, omnipotent or omnipotent um, if he doesn't have libertarian freedom. Uh, but since God is free in a libertarian sense, he could have created or actualized any other feasible world or even uh, refrained from creating any world at all. Now, I should, I think I mentioned feasible world. A feasible world is a possible world that's logically consistent with uh, humans having libertarian freedom. I'm not going to go too far in those weeds right now. If people are confused about that, uh, send them to my YouTube channel, Free Thinking Ministries, or my website, or my book, uh, Human Freedom, Divine Knowledge, and Mere Molinism. But uh, let me say that Molinism says that God, having uh, you know, being omniscient and having middle knowledge knows everything that would happen, including any free actions in any feasible world, if he were to create it. And God's, um, God's middle knowledge is, uh, we, we call it middle knowledge because it's situated in between his natural knowledge um, and his uh, free knowledge. And middle knowledge just means God knows everything that would happen. Um, so God knows everything that he could create. Um, everything that would happen if he created in one way or the other, and then he chooses to create in one way or the other. And that means now that God knows everything that will happen. And that includes all of our free actions in a libertarian sense. So if, if we have free will in that sense, and God knows how we would freely choose prior to creating us, then I say that mere Molinism is true. Um, but yeah, I just, dis I discuss this much more on my yeah. YouTube channel. So go there, yeah. subscribe, ring the bell and all that kind of stuff. So. <laughs> yeah. Go subscribe. Yeah. Check it out on Tim's channel as well as, uh, we had a three hour, three part, three hour long conversation on this, uh, pre YouTube for me. So I'll put those in the show notes as well. Uh, if you want to listen on podcasts, uh, there are three different podcasts that we did back in 2019, uh, going over Molinism, Calvinism, Arminianism, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So, um, all right. So now getting into the, back to the, you know, in this, in this, argument? How does Molinism right. and God knowing what would uh, people would freely choose to do, uh, how does that undercut Schillingberg's kind of main premise of these uh, non-resistant non-believers? Yeah. So again, to remind your uh, the viewers here, um, I, I like to uh, summarize uh, Schellenberg's hiddenness argument like this. So premise one, if God exists, there will never be any non-resistant non-believers. 
Two, there are some non-resistant non-believers. Three, therefore, God does not exist. And many people are going to uh, uh, reject um, the second premise. Um, but I, I look at, look, uh, the first one, if God exists, there will never be any non-resistant non-believers. And I think that's the weak one, actually. So again, uh, uh, principle A says that necessarily, if God exists, then for some time T and some finite person S, who is a non-resistant seeker at T, God will ensure that or provide sufficient evidence for belief in God such that at T, S believes God exists. So again, that means if Bob is a non-resistant uh, non-believer on Friday, God's going to make sure that he believes and <laughs> is saved on Friday and not wait till Saturday or some later day. Right. Um, now, Erasmus and I have argued that Molinism undercuts that principle A. Uh, and, and so why is this the case? Well, since God uh, possesses middle knowledge, he's omniscient, he knows both, one, what a person would freely do in any circumstance that they may find themselves in. And two, God knows the repercussions of the person's free actions. So if that's the case, there would be feasible scenarios in which God knows it's actually better that a non-resistant seeker does not become a believer immediately or even perhaps at all. Um, so in other words, given, given God's middle knowledge, it's possible uh, that that God will not ensure or provide sufficient evidence for belief in God, uh, such that certain non-resistant seekers become believers. And although there's many such possible, or I should say, feasible scenarios, um, since I don't want to give away the entire paper before it's published, I'm just going to give one counterexample that Erasmus and I offer in our paper. So let me read that here. Um, all right, so. Uh, becoming a believer at a later time, uh, later than this, you know, later than Friday, <laughs> um, may benefit both the non-resistant seeker and others. So uh, that is, it might be better for the world as a whole if someone who is ready and willing to become a Christian in 2023 does not actually become a Christian until 2024 or perhaps some later date. So consider the possibility that God does not ensure, um, or you know, that God doesn't ensure that, or 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 some non-resistant seeker S. I can't talk right now. Um, okay, so let me start over. Consider the possibility that God does not ensure that some non-resistant seeker S, or let's just call him Sam, um, or Bob. You said Bob. All right, <laughs> some non-resistant seeker named Bob becomes a believer at some time T, Friday, the time that Bob becomes a non-resistant seeker, because God knows that one, Bob will become a believer at some later time, say a year from Friday, and two, it would be better that Bob becomes a believer a year from Friday as opposed to this Friday. So, for example, uh, we've got Sam, I've talked about Sam and Bob, but in, in the paper, we talk about Jones. So let me, let me bring up Jones. Suppose that Jones becomes a non-resistant seeker at time T. Suppose further that the following two propositions are true and that God, through his middle knowledge, knows that they are true. So the first one is this. If Jones becomes a believer at T, then Jones would get married in France, his home country, remain in France his entire life, and lead no one to faith in God. All right, that's the first proposition. It's either true or false. God, since he has middle knowledge prior to creation, knows it's true. Okay. Uh, number two, if Jones does not become a believer at T, then Jones would move to Africa, become a believer in Africa at uh, time T star, a year later than T. Uh, he'd get married then in Africa, start a Christian school in Africa, have a tremendous positive impact on the lives of the many students in his school, and lead 305 people to faith in God, which otherwise would not have been the case. So look, it's clear in this scenario that it would be better 
that Jones does not become a believer at T. Indeed, it seems like it would be unloving and unwise for God to ensure that Jones becomes a believer at T, and hence a perfectly wise and loving God would not do this. So a God with middle knowledge um, who is not determining uh, humans uh, or, or necessitating their actions, but giving them this libertarian freedom, but a God who knows what would be the case if he uh, becomes an, you know, or if he gives his life to Christ uh, on Friday instead of a year from Friday, God, being perfectly good and a maximally great being, would not ensure that he becomes a believer at you know on this Friday. Now, so this raises the question: Do these uh, non-resistant non-believers exist? And yeah, nice thought experiment, Tim, but. Man, we're talking about the real world here. And so I want to support uh, this uh, thought experiment or this claim with some anecdotal evidence, all right? Uh, real experiences that I've had. You know, the reason I got into apologetics, theology, and, and philosophy in the first place is because I have a passion for evangelism. And I was a pastor. I just wanted to tell people the gospel. I wanted to tell people about Jesus. And then I saw all this pushback. Um, and so I saw the the need for apologetics and to think deeply about these issues. So uh, I still continue to share the gospel on a regular basis. And, you know, obviously you and I being involved in Maven, that's, you know, we're, we're both wired that way. We go, we, we lead, we, we continue to get on the front line, so to speak, even though, you know, I'm, I'm still right. I'm writing journal, academic journal articles and books and things like that. I make sure several uh, several weeks out of the year, I'm on the front lines with the teenagers, um, with and with you, uh, uh, preaching preaching the gospel, sharing the gospel, and then explaining why the gospel is true and why we know God exists and why we know uh, that Christianity is true. But I continue to do this, and uh, I I was uh, sharing the gospel with my friend Alex a few years ago, and Alex is. Uh, He's this guy. We, we both had jujitsu in common together. He's really good at jujitsu. And, uh, and we used to train together. But I, I'd share, share my faith with him. And he aggressively resisted my attempts to evangelize him. Um, and it got to the point where I'm like, okay. Uh, like it was getting almost hostile. Like, like, <laughs> like it was going to get much worse than a, a mere jujitsu match. You know, um, a or a friendly jujitsu match, and I was like, you know what? I mean, I was sharing with him uh, uh, William Lane Craig stuff. I was pointing to him. I thought maybe he needs some Frank Turek to get his feet wet. I, I'd give him Mike Lacona's arguments for the resurrection. Uh, he would not look at anything I would give him, and it, like I said, it got kind of hostile. So I eventually wiped the dust off my feet and said, "Okay, look, I'm I'm done." Uh, we kind of went our separate ways. And I, I actually didn't see him for, it's probably over a year at that point. But then I ran into him and uh, some was different. And he was smiling ear to ear. I mean, before he was just, just always, he had this darkness to him. Um, but I saw, man, it's like this, this light. <laughs> I don't know. That's, it seemed like I could tell some was different. And I asked him what was going on and why he looked so happy. Why was he smiling ear to ear? And he told me uh, that he was now a Christian, that he had given his life to Christ and he was now a believer. And I was like, no way. I could not believe it based on our past interactions. And so needless to say, I was just shocked. I was also overjoyed. And then I asked him, I'm like, well, gosh, Alex, how did this happen? Uh, and he responded, well, I, I read Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life. <laughs> and I was like, okay, that's great. But Jordan Peterson, although I, I think that's a great book, you know, <laughs> but Jordan Peterson is not a Christian. And that book is not a Christian book. And Alex said, I know, but Jordan Peterson got me so close to the cross that everything you said in the past now made perfect sense. So I like to say it seems like Jordan Peterson is the gateway drug for Christianity. <laughs> but but check this out. 
Alex then told me that, <laughs> I mean, he's a brand new Christian, right? He's not studying Molinism or middle knowledge or anything like that. But, but Alex told me that God knew that he had to be reached by someone who was not writing from a Christian perspective. I was trying to get uh, Alex to read my stuff or William Lane Craig's stuff or other the work of other Christians. He wouldn't touch it because they were Christians. But God knew, he said, Alex told me that God knew that Alex had to be reached by someone who was not writing from a Christian perspective. And Jordan Peterson was that guy. So look, if that's the case, it's good that God allows Jordan Peterson, at least for a time, to remain in in a state of non-resistant non-belief. And I'll say, and I mentioned earlier in in the interview, that if there's anybody in the world today that seems to be or who could qualify um, to be in that category as a non-resistant non-believer, it seems to me that uh, Jordan Peterson is the leading candidate. Um, I, I Actually, and I want to say that Alex is not the only guy that I've talked to. I know one other person uh, named Jimmy, fantastic guitar player. First time I, I met him was on the local uh, ABC affiliate. They were doing a, a, a special on the news about uh, the rising tide of atheism. And so they interviewed Jimmy because he was this outspoken atheist in a rock band <laughs> um, in the area. And then they interviewed me. And so that was the first time that he and I first met each other. Well, over the years, um, we've had many conversations since. He read Jordan Peterson as well and had the same kind of experience as Alex. And now Jimmy is also a Christian. I just hung out with him the other night and we were <laughs> just having a deep theological conversation, just blowing my mind, um, watching how people are, you know, how these atheists who are so aggressive in their atheism are now coming to Christ. Um, so just let me encourage people out there, continue to share the gospel, continue right. to back it up with good uh, reasons and apologetics and be nice about it. Don't look at these atheists as enemies to fight, <coughs> but look at them as people who are lost and need the truth. But you got to be nice about it or they're not going to consider it. And I built friendships with both these guys. Um, and uh, I think, you know, anyway, they ultimately they came to Christ. But here's my point. God used... And, apparently a non-resistant non-believer to move both of these guys closer to truth. And when that was combined with the stuff that I had already shared with them. There you are. You just came back. You froze for a second. Oh, okay, cool. Cool. I I was just saying that those are both, uh, you know, two true stories, both these things. I I don't know if you saw this. I said it clicked in their minds um, when, when, uh, you know, the writings of Jordan Peterson combined with the gospel and the apologetics that I shared with them uh, before it all kind of made sense together and God used all of that in their lives. But if, if, so if Jordan Peterson is a non-resistant non-believer and he has been for say uh, four years now, I don't know, I'm just throwing that out there. If he would have saved and, and get, gave sufficient evidence to Jordan Peterson four years ago, and then Jordan Peterson started writing this stuff from a Christian perspective. These guys wouldn't have read it. Yeah. And so that's why I said that, you know, Jordan Peterson is the gateway drug for Christianity here. But here, yeah. here's the, the main point. It's that in each, uh, you know, the, the salient point is that in each individual situation regarding non-resistant seekers, uh, because God has middle knowledge, God knows whether it would be better for the non-resistant seeker to become a believer at that particular time or not. However, since there are feasible situations in which it would be better for God to, to ensure that a non-resistant seeker becomes a believer at a particular time, then that principle, that principle A that I discussed, it is not the case that necessarily God will ensure that any non-resistant seeker believes that God exists. And so that principle is false. And so the whole argument uh, falls apart. Um, so yeah, God God could have really good reasons for not ensuring that somebody becomes a believer just because they're a non-resistant non-believer at a certain right. time. Right. Well, and so anyway, this, go ahead. The, 
Well, I say, and, and there's there's an aspect of this, right, where we kind of have to trust, right, because we don't know, we don't have that middle knowledge of, of what would happen given different circumstances. And so, but we we see experiences where this does seem true. You shared two. I can think of another one. Uh, my fifth year teaching, I'm finishing up, I mean, you're 12 right now, but my fifth year teaching, I had one of the most resistant atheists in my class multiple times in the year in front of everyone in the class would stand up and say, there's no way you could ever prove to me that God is real and that atheism is false. It's like, hey, well, let's just keep talking. And what's interesting mm-hmm. is that uh, his resistance throughout that whole year led to him objecting to everything I taught, pushing against everything I brought up. And he was raising objections and questions that the Christians in my class had never heard of or that they had heard of. But now that they uh, are, are hearing a, a conversation on and I had Christian students in that class say, wow, I grew so much in my faith because all the questions that I've always had have been responded yeah. to and were discussed. That student then graduates. I say bye. He comes back the next fall and says, Mr. Paul, I became a Christian over the summer. And 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 awesome. and, and God touched him in, in a way over that summer. And so I say, look, God could have saved him at the very beginning of the year when I first met him. Uh, but who knows what would have happened? Maybe he wouldn't have objected to anything in my class. And then the Christian students in my class would not have deepened their faith. And so here's an example we could see where these Christian students grew and deepened their faith. And this person became a Christian. It seems kind of like a, a win win in a sense. And so we can look at those and we see examples of people like Nabil Qureshi or someone, you know, who spent six years in his journey. And, and my first thought is, okay, one, you could say, well, why didn't God save him right away? And it's like, well, he could have, but also what did he learn over those six years that then he could use to end up gaining knowledge and bringing more people. Cause those six years and anyone here who was questioning the faith, when you're often questioning, you're investigating more fervently than when maybe you're a believer and you kind of stop that investigation because you found the answer. And, and that investigation I think can then lead to possibly you growing in your knowledge, your experience, and then eventually you become a Christian in your effectiveness of, of sharing and administering to other people who are in a similar situation. And so I think, I don't know, to me, this relates a little bit to, like Romans five, you know, three to five, where it talks about, you know, uh, that our suffering produces, uh, you know, uh, endurance, endurance produces character and character produces hope. And it's this idea of like, we often want God to end our suffering instantly. God just show up and end this. But we often go through the suffering and see, wow, I'm so much better because of this. Um, And I think, is it possible is what you're saying that God allows for this non-resistant non-believer to go through this period of time of searching and questioning and challenging so that when they become a Christian and God knew that they would, they are actually Mm -hmm. better than, than if they would have become a Christian earlier. It seems like it's at least possible as you're saying. Well, that, that passage that you just referenced along with second Corinthians 4, 17, where Paul uh, says that, you know, and, and he's being sarcastic calling these light momentary afflictions, but he says these light momentary afflictions right. prepare us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So he's basically saying all this, all this pain, all the suffering, all this affliction, all the way things ought not be, which would include even these levels of divine hiddenness. Um, and any other kind of evil pain or suffering you can think of, all of this prepares us for eternity. So it's, uh, and, and I, I think this is a, I think Paul basically defeated the, uh, the problem of evil there. Um, and I think it's, uh, and I've argued this to be the case, that it's because we don't lose our, our libertarian freedom in heaven. Um, there's nothing deterministically preventing us from uh, rebelling as a, uh, or, or falling as Adam and Eve and Satan and a third of all the angels did. Uh, but they were all created in a perfect state of affairs. They took it for granted and they wrecked it. We are, we come into existence in a, a world suffused with pain, evil, and suffering and, and divine hiddenness. And after we find ourselves on the other side of death, looking into the face of Jesus, where there is no pain, evil, or suffering, and he is anything but hidden, would you, after experiencing this world with all this pain, evil, and suffering, and hiddenness, will you then take that perfect state of affairs for granted and wreck it like Adam Adam and Eve, Satan, and the third of all the angels did? I, for one, will not. I've learned from these light momentary afflictions, and I can't wait uh, 
to be in the presence of God where he is never hidden again. Yeah, <laughs> so absolutely. Yeah. We learn from it. Absolutely. Well, I think as we're working through here, Megan, we only have five minutes left and there's a whole nother point I want to uh, hit with you. So maybe if you can go a few minutes over, um, yeah, but, but this, so I think we, we've addressed this first problem, right. Of this argument to say that, that, um, you know, uh, that God does not exist because there would never be non-resistant non-believers. And we've given reason to believe that there could be some non-resistant non-believers, um, and, and why God is waiting. And so the first premise of the argument fails, therefore the argument fails. Uh, but the second premise is, is that there are non-resistant non-believers. We've kind of pushed it against this, you know, multiple ways, like, well, maybe there are, maybe there aren't. Um, could you say this, um, that basically, Based on God's middle knowledge, he knows everyone who would freely come to him and he will guarantee that the person who would freely come to him will. And so there is no one who will ever exist anywhere on the face of this planet who would have freely come to believe in God, that God has hidden himself from them to where they don't, right? There, there's no person saying, God, I, I want to know, or or what's more, I, I'm trying to figure this out. And God's like, well, if I reveal myself to you, you would come to me, but I don't want to, right? right. I, I don't yep. think that person exists. Um, and so you either right. have the person who would not come to knowledge of God, it, it, no matter what he really does, um, or... You have the person who will. And so in one sense, there's not a non-resistant non-believer. They don't exist. Uh, non-believers, ultimately non-believers, are resistant. They are they are resistant to believing in God. There's something there. But there could be non-resistant non-believers for just a period of time where their heart is turned from God. God regenerates them. God reveals himself to them. They become non-resistant. And at some time, as we've talked about, um, maybe they're non-resistant non-believers, but they eventually will become a believer. There's there's never going to be a person who remains a non-resistant non-believer until death. Um, and so yeah. the afterlife, there will be no one in hell. It's like, I would have believed, but you just didn't right. reveal yourself to me. Uh, yep. Ultimately, yep. Yep. that's not going to be the case. Uh, but maybe for yeah. a short period of time, there are genuine non-resistant non-believers. Yeah. And uh, Erasmus and I discussed this in the paper as well. Um, I said towards the end of it, I think I wrote something along these lines. We'll see if I can uh, remember it off the top of my head. But I said, for all we know, this is the one feasible freedom permitting world in which evil is ultimately defeated and everyone who is not trans world damned is saved. So that Can means you explain really quick what that, trans world damn means. Uh, that, that, that would be <laughs> uh, an individual. So no matter what situation, no matter what freedom permitting. And so with libertarian freedom in mind, no matter what freedom permitting scenario, God would place them in, they would reject God. People are like, well, who would do that? Uh, and I'm like, well, Satan seems to be uh a prime candidate here. And if we can imagine Satan as an agent who would do that, we can, uh, you know, the, the door is open to humans who would do that. Uh, so it seems like, you know, Satan was uh, uh, created in God's presence um, in perfection, uh, had all these gifts uh, bestowed upon him and he rebelled. So if Satan would do that in that situation, it seems like he's a prime candidate for a, a, a kind of guy that would do that in any situation. Um, so, but yeah, if there's, uh, if there's one, you know, think of Dr. Strange and the Avengers. Um, he knew of these 14,605 different possible worlds he could create. And then all of them, except for one, uh, the Avengers lose. But in that one world, uh, all the saints are raised and the evil of Thanos is defeated. So in a similar manner, we can think, well, gosh, an, an omnipotent God who can create all these freedom permitting worlds. He knows out of uh, out of all of them that if it's even the case that there's even one world in which uh, a freedom permitting world in which evil is ultimately defeated and all who are not trans world damned are ultimately saved, uh, then God would be justified in creating that world no matter how much evil, pain, and suffering is in it for a finite time, because God has eternity in mind with no end. So. Um, so we do talk about that. And so if that's the case, then if there is truly anybody who would love Jesus for eternity, 
if they were in a, in a freedom permitting circumstance where they could come to love him for eternity, then God will make sure they get what they need. Right. So God with middle knowledge knows that if, if God knows prior to creation, who would, um, who, who would freely choose to love God in return for eternity, then God will make sure that that person gets the evidence they need to believe. Yeah. But he might, he might know, and we talk about this in the paper, he might know that there's a guy who, um, if he were to get the evidence to, to move from being a non-resistant non-believer to being a pure believer, he might know that that guy, after going into ministry and everything else, might then become uh, or might apostatize and reject Christ. And so, so he might not allow that person to ever move from being a non-resistant non-believer. And we discuss that in the paper. But then we talk about, well, then what do we do with all the folks who um, God allows them to become believers to start ministry, and then they become atheists or apostatize after uh, after being in ministry for a while? You know, a friend of mine, uh, you know, we argue about a lot of things, but, um, you know, because he was a Calvinist and I wasn't, but now he's not even a Christian. He's, he's since rejected Christ. Um, and... Uh, but he had a powerful online ministry for years. Hmm. Well, why would God allow this uh, this this guy doing this Calvinist ministry to uh, uh, become a Christian at all if he was going to apostatize and reject Christ? And uh, you know, you have to then, then you have to say, well, gosh, I'm aware of others who benefited from his ministry. And so maybe God knew that even though this guy uh, would eventually reject uh, God, that he would be in a state of where he uh, believed Christianity was true for a while. And during that state, um, led others to Christ who would then um, persevere into eternity. So there's with God's middle knowledge in mind, there's so many things that he's aware of um, that we would not be that we wouldn't be in a position to know uh, or to make judgments upon. But if he's got middle knowledge, then we can, we can trust him Yeah, there. And so I, yeah. I do, I think that Molinism and this mere Molinism that I argue for, uh, it might be the only way to handle this thoughtful argument that Schellenberg has advanced. And if it's not, if it's not the only way I, I would easily, um, or I, I would confidently claim that it's the best way. Yeah. Well, Tim, I do appreciate you coming on and, and sharing this way to respond because I, I do think it is true. And I want to encourage those, right, who, who are who are listening to this, whether it's you or you're working with someone, um, I, I do believe, and uh, we could talk more about this later if you want to go into deeper things, uh, everybody listening, but uh, that, you know, I, well, me and you, but Tim, we both wrote a paper for our class on why God allows evil. And one of the questions we had to yeah. answer in that paper is what happens to those who, who, um, if conscious belief is required for salvation, how is it fair for those who've never heard the gospel? Right. And my short answer to that paper was God will make sure that those who would repent will have the opportunity. And, and so yeah. I just want to leave that with, with people who are struggling them with themselves. Like, why doesn't God just show them? It's like, Hey, look, if you really are non-resistant and you, you want to believe, just keep pressing into him. And eventually he, he will save you. And, and he's, he's molding you and working through you right now. And that's hard to go through, mm -hmm. just like it's hard to go through any amount of suffering, but we know that suffering, yeah. produces our character and character, you know, produces endurance and endurance, hope and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and it is so good as well as if you're having a conversation with someone and you're like beating your head over against the, <laughs> the wall and you're like, well, why can't they just see it? And it's like, I don't know, but keep working with them, keep loving them, keep that friendship going because you don't know what God is doing in their life and what God will do and how God will use you. And that maybe God is using this time is just a time for you to, you know, bolster up your apologetics and figure out how to better mm -hmm. answer questions. Uh, and so that you're better prepared for the next person that's going to come along. Uh, but don't give up hope uh, because God knows what would happen. Those who really are freely seeking him, God will uh, end up giving them the opportunity to be saved. And I think that's something that we can confidently stand behind. So Tim, thanks for coming on, taking this time and, and having another yeah. conversation with me. I always enjoy uh, these conversations uh, that we get to have together. Yeah. And I'll say really quickly that yeah. uh, that paper is scheduled to actually be published this year. 
Okay. Uh, sometimes. So it's not out there yet, but if people want to see more, I did a, a video where I presented that paper. Um, I think you mentioned it earlier at the EPS conference in Dallas uh, in the 2021. So, yeah. And, uh, on my website, I'll, I'll post uh, that video link to that video, as well as if you're watching on YouTube, I'll put it, uh, eventually in the uh, notes down below. Yeah. And that one's cool too, because, uh, Dr. Craig was in the audience yeah. and he and I had a nice exchange along with some <laughs> other philosophers. Um, yeah, that was so fun. people would, yeah, they should watch it just to get that part of it. So, I mean, I've interviewed Dr. Craig. I don't know if uh, if he started asking me questions, I might I might be sweating. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I was. But it turned I've, out I've heard, that, out. I've sat in lectures where he's been asking questions, and I'm like, I don't even know what he's asking. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Tim. Well, have a good rest of your day. Appreciate it, man. All right, you too, brother. Yep. See you. All right, everybody. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I hope this has been an encouragement to you. There are tons more resources, a lot more that we could talk about. Check out the website, check out other videos that are going to be popping up here on the side uh, to continue growing deeper in your faith, thinking well about the cultural issues and Christianity so that you can engage the culture well, present Christianity to your friends and do so from a biblical worldview and do it confidently. That is my goal and that is my hope. So with that, I hope today has encouraged you. Share it with a friend, like it, subscribe, do all that kind of fun stuff. You want to continue to learn and grow deeper in your faith this coming year. And I will see you guys again, as always, for another worldview video. So until then, continue to think deeply about God, Christianity, because they are worth thinking about. Bye, everybody. to follow your love will guide